Well, last week we finished up John chapter 19, verses 17 through 30. So today we will pick up our study with verse 31 of John chapter 19. But again, as we often do, let's go back and read some of the prior verses. So with your Bibles open to John chapter 19, um, let's go all the way back and just start reading at verse 1. So John chapter 19, verse 1. It says, So then, Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to him, Behold, the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him, and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written. I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from, top, from the top in one piece. 
They said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour that disciple took her home to to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel of full now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Now, before we move on into our verses for today, I want us to think a little bit more about the death of Jesus on the cross. It's very important that we internalize the death of Jesus Christ and that we understand the depths of his love for us. You know, there were seven statements that Jesus made while he was on the cross. Let's look at each one of those statements. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Luke is to the left one book from where we are now in the Gospel of John. Luke chapter 23. And let's look down and we'll start reading in verse 34. So Luke chapter 23 verse 34 says, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is statement number one. Now, look down at verse 39. It says, Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we have the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's statement number two. Now, statement number three, we actually studied last week, and of course we read it again this morning, but let's go ahead and turn back to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, and let's read verses 25 through 27. Verse 25 says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. 
When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. So there we actually see the third statement that Jesus made from the cross. But notice that each one of these first three statements from Jesus were focused on the needs of others. Do you see that? First he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, Jesus was concerned for others. Even what they were doing to him didn't matter. He was concerned for them. By saying to the thief on the cross next to him, Today you will be with me in paradise? Jesus again here was concerned for others. And by making sure that his mother was taken care of, he was again more concerned for others and the well-being of others. You see, if this had been me, I'd been screaming, get me down from here. I'm innocent. I don't deserve this. Well, of course, if it were me, I wouldn't be innocent and I would deserve it. But I'm saying if I were Jesus in Jesus' shoes, praise be to God, I am not for everybody's sake. But, but not Jesus, though, you know. He didn't do that. He was first and foremost concerned for the well-being of others. That's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Then, as we turn now in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, it's back, um, first book of the New Testament, is Matthew. It was Matthew, Mark, Luke, then John. Matthew chapter 27. And we'll look down and we'll start reading in verse uh, 45. So hopefully you're there. Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So in the midst of his pain and suffering, Jesus cried out to the Father in heaven. And Jesus here speaks to the Father in a different way than we have seen him speak to him thus far as we've been going through the Gospel of John. Jesus was always one with God, the Father, and had a oneness and was always right in tune with the Father, if you will. But now he cries out to God as if God is distant from him. And why is this? Well, I want you to turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is, uh, is obviously to the left of where we are now. It's between Nahum and Zephaniah. And if it makes it easier for you to find Habakkuk, um, please feel free to just turn to the front of your Bible and look in the contents, and you can get the page number there, because it's... Uh, it's hard to find some of these books in the Old Testament like this, but um, feel free to always do that. So Habakkuk, 
And we're going to look at chapter 1. Now, I'm just going to look at uh, verse 13 here, but I'm, I'm just going to, we're going to just look at the first sentence of this verse, and we're going to kind of get a glimpse here of, uh, I guess, what, what you might call the nature of God, if you will, who God is. But Habakkuk here is speaking about God the Father, and he says in verse 13, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil, and cannot look on wickedness. So, speaking of God the Father there, it says, He is of purer eyes than to behold evil, and cannot look on wickedness. Now, we may not be able to comprehend that in our finite minds. So, but what we're seeing here, and the reason I'm having you go to that verse, is when Jesus was on that cross, he became sin for us. He was sin on that cross. Just like we studied a few weeks back about, you know, the serpent up on the pole when the snakes were biting the children of Israel. Jesus cries out now from this cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes, Jesus was God in the flesh. And we've seen that all through our study of the Gospel of John. But when he was on that cross, he was every bit a man. And he was taking every bit of the sin of the world upon himself. All the sin of the world. Think about that. Think about all the sin that has taken place in this world. You name it. Think back on history, whatever. I mean, I could throw some things out there, but just think about all the sin of the world. It's upon Jesus Christ. Turn to the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, and we're going to look at chapter 5. You'll go past the Gospel of John, and just after you pass the, you'll go past Acts and then Romans, and then you're going to hit 1 Corinthians and then you're going to find 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians 5, and we're going to look at verse 21. Okay, kind of to, to bring this home from a scriptural standpoint, what I was just saying to you there. Verse 21, For he made him who knew no sin. Now, who is the he? God, who is the him? Jesus. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Powerful verse of scripture. One that you should take time to think about and meditate on. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. See, we're the righteousness of God in who? In Jesus Christ. So while Jesus was on that cross, He was sin. He was the only man ever to live that was pure enough as God in the flesh to take sin upon Himself. You know what I'm saying? Picture um, like, like a pure white sheet. 
okay? And let's say that this sheet is the, the purest of all pure whites, okay? It's as white as white can be. It's as clean as clean can be. And let's say that you have a, a five-foot tall and a five-foot wide pile of dirt sitting next to that white sheet. And what you want to accomplish is you have to get every speck of that dirt onto that clean white sheet. But in order to do so, we need every bit of space available on that sheet. If there's one speck of dirt on that sheet, we will not be able to get all these specks of dirt from our pile here onto that sheet. You follow what I'm saying? Just kind of throwing this out here right now, but that's what you want to accomplish. We need every bit of that sheet to be clean in order to, to fit all that dirt onto it. Okay, has to be totally pure, totally clean. We need every bit of space. Well, spiritually speaking, okay, Jesus was pure as pure can be and clean as clean can be. And the only man able to take the entire sin of the world upon himself and shed his blood for the remission of everyone else's sin, all the sin of the world. And why was he so pure? Because he was God in the flesh. And here's what I want to stress. He not only took all of our sins, yes, he did, but he himself became sin. See the difference? He became sin. And he became sin, it says there in verse uh, 21, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, he did it all for us, that we might become clean in God's eyes. Not having our own righteousness, which is from the law, like from religion and good deeds and stuff like that, we all fall short of the glory of God. So Jesus did it for us. And that's an explanation of the fourth statement that Jesus made from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, yes, was every bit God, every bit pure, every bit clean. But he came to the earth as a man. He walked on this earth as a man. He was tempted in all ways like as we are, the Bible says. Yet he remained without sin so that he could get on that cross and become sin for us. Now, turn again to John chapter 19. I know we also have already read through these verses here, but let's look again at verse 28. Okay, uh, John chapter 19, verse 28. It says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. So this is the fifth statement. From the cross. And he expresses a physical need. And remember, he was a human being just like you and me.
Then in verse 30, it says, So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. That's statement number six, which we studied last week. And then turning to uh, Luke chapter 23. Go ahead and turn there, Luke chapter 23. Again, just one book to the left, the Gospel of John. Luke 23. And looking down at verse 46, it says, And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Those are the seven statements of Jesus on the cross. Even in his agony, he was forgiving. He was loving. He was caring. And he remained focused on, focused on the Father. In his ability to forgive under such circumstances, he showed that he was divine. In his caring for others, he showed that he was the epitome of love. In his physical need for something to drink, he showed he was human. And by becoming sin for us and being forsaken by his Father, he became our Savior. And from his birth to his death, he is our example. He is our high priest. He is the one that we can come to and find help in times of need. Now, all of that was just a study tagging on to what we covered for the last couple of weeks. But let's go ahead and turn back to John chapter 19. And we'll pick up our study and we'll finish out the rest of the chapter. John chapter 19. Jesus is on the cross. And verse 31 of John chapter 19 says, Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the Jews here want to get this whole crucifixion thing over and done with as quickly as possible. They just crucified God in the flesh. But now they want to get the Sabbath day, get back to the Sabbath day, you know, so they can honor God. <laughs> the same God that came in the flesh to reach out to them, they need to get busy honoring him, huh? It really doesn't make any sense, does it? Well, you know what else doesn't make sense? Gathering to worship God one, maybe two days a week, but forgetting that he is with us. 24 7 365. I think it's easy for us to pass Jesus by every day and forget the things he wants us to do. You see, if Christianity to us is only what we're doing on Sunday mornings, then we are totally missing Jesus. 
because Jesus was all about loving and reaching out to a lost and dying people. Jesus told us that we need to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. His word tells us to share his love with the world around us. But if it's become just about our gatherings or our festivals and such, then it is proof positive that we are nothing more than just another religion. Our Lord is alive and well. Our Lord indwells us and empowers us by His Holy Spirit living within us. But His Holy Spirit lives within us for a couple of different reasons. For one, by the Holy Spirit we are sealed and thereby belong to God. Secondly, by the Holy Spirit we have power to be witnesses for Jesus to those that are around us and as many others as we can reach. So we need to be careful that our Christianity has not become just another religion because that's not what Jesus came for. The Jews were too busy worshiping God through their religion to see that God was right there in their midst. We can't be so busy doing the same thing and miss the power of the Holy Spirit working within us and through us. Look at verse 32. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Wow. Do you see how every detail of the crucifixion was controlled by God? Do you remember um, last week we saw in Exodus chapter 12 that one of the regulations for the lamb was that, uh, excuse me, the lamb that was to be sacrificed for Passover was that not any of his bones could be broken. And here we see that the lamb of God, Jesus Christ, is fulfilling all those regulations. Man was not controlling this crucifixion. God was. The Jews are not to blame for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Sin is to blame for the death of Jesus Christ. And love was his reason for dying. God, the creator of all things, the author of life, wanted to call each and every one of us his very own. So Jesus, excuse me, Jesus paid the price to redeem us from the power of sin. Verse 34, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. Now, you don't need to turn there right now. You can look it up on your own. But 1 Corinthians 15.45, speaking of Adam, the first man created, says the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So Jesus there, in that verse, it's 1 Corinthians 15, 45, look it up if you'd like. Uh, Jesus there is referred to as the last Adam. Jesus, by his spirit, gives abundant life to all who are born again. So when it says here in verse 34 that the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, 
It reminds us of how God took from the side of Adam and gave him a bride. And as this blood and water gushed forth from the side of Jesus, the last Adam, it gave to him his bride. Because as a result of his death, the church, the body of Christ, was formed. Everyone that has come to the cross, repented of their sin, sin and has a, uh, as a result have been born again, they have become part of the church which is the Bride of Christ. And you can study about that in the book of Revelation. But there's something else we see here in verse 34. Why did blood and water flow? Well, the Lord will explain this to us someday, I'm sure. But there is a a medical um, explanation that I think is rather intriguing when considering this verse of Scripture here. When a person's heart ruptures, right, their physical heart, when it ruptures, the the blood collects in the lining around the wall of the heart, right, called the pericardium. Okay, no, I'm not a doctor. I just studied this. I just looked up this stuff, okay? Um, And this blood then divides into two parts and becomes a mixture of a blood clot and a watery serum. I like this explanation because it may say to us that maybe Jesus died of a ruptured heart. Maybe when he looked from that cross out onto humanity and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Maybe his heart was broken because of the effects of sin on all of us. Now, like I said, that's just one attempt at an explanation. The Bible really doesn't tell us directly why blood and water flowed from the side of Jesus. So if you want to argue with me about it, don't. But it's just one possible explanation there, if you will, I guess. But we do not, but excuse me, but we do know that the blood of Jesus, like the cleansing effects of water, washes away our sin and makes us pure and acceptable in the sight of God the Father. And that is a fact. The blood of Jesus is the only thing that washes away sin. Look at verse 35. And he who has seen, has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. What John is saying here in this verse is, hey, I was there. I saw the whole thing, and I'm testifying of it to you. I'm telling you the truth. And then he goes on to give the reason for what has just taken place. And he says in verse 36, for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. So there we see again, God is in complete control. All of this was prophesied of years and years before. Then verse 38, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, 
be a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the uh, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. You see, both Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were members of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin, again, was the Jewish Supreme Court. You see, they were secret disciples of Jesus. But here at his death, they have had enough of being a secret disciple. And they now boldly come forth to honor the body of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And since we know that Jesus died for us, we too must put an end to keeping it secret. Are you a follower of Jesus? If so, then let the world know. Let it show. Verse 40. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. So here we see, after the death of Jesus, there was a man there named Joseph, right, who took the body of Jesus and wrapped it in linen and placed it in a tomb. 33 years prior to this, at the birth of Jesus, there was another man named Joseph that partook in wrapping him in swaddling clothes and placed him in a manger. From birth to death, he was the Messiah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is another really neat parallel that we can study this, this morning here, but for the sake of time, I'll give it to you as a homework assignment. <laughs> Read Leviticus chapter 16. It tells of the Day of Atonement, a day that is called in our day Yom Kippur. What it entailed was that the high priest who was in the temple would trade his robe that he wore for the simple linen robe that was worn by all the other priests. He would then go through the veil and into an area that was called the Holy of Holies. He would sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant, which held the Ten Commandments, and also sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. Now, when he went in, he tied a rope on his foot, and he left the other end of the rope on the outside of the Holy of Holies. If the priests were defiled or in sin, he would die, and they would uh, they would have to pull him out by that rope that was tied to his foot because they couldn't go in there because they would be defiled by his dead body and they weren't high priest anyway. If he were not defiled though, if the high priest were not defiled, he would walk out of the Holy of Holies and into the courtyard where all the people would rejoice over the fact that the high priest had now atoned for their sins for another year. 
Think about that. Read, Like I said, that's a homework assignment for you. Leviticus chapter 16. But think about this. Jesus, our high priest, atoned for our sin on that cross. He came out of the grave. And by so doing, he pronounced us free from sin. Not just for a year, but for all eternity. It's so beautiful how the Old Testament pointed to Jesus Christ. Jesus has fulfilled all the requirements of the law. We don't need to keep the Passover. We don't need to have a priest atone for our sins. The work has been completed. And Jesus said so from the cross. He said, it is finished. The law convicted us and bound us all under sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. But Jesus came and set us free. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you for your great love for the world. Father God, thank you for the cross of Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you were obedient unto death, that you took all of our sin upon yourself, and you've given us the hope of eternal life. And I pray for anyone listening that has not come to that place of surrendering their heart to you, Lord. Maybe there's a a stone in front of their heart that needs to be rolled away that your resurrected power might come inside of them, that they might know you as the God of all creation, that they might have that personal and intimate relationship with you, Lord. Touch their hearts. Touch all of our hearts. Renew us in the spirit of our minds. Cause us to know the truth of who you are as we study your word. We thank you and we praise you again for this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening, and God bless.